Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Brian McLaren, it's been a long time coming, man. Thank you so much for being here. It's my own fault. I have not reached out, and I should have. I'm very glad to be finally talking to you. Well, I feel the same way. Like I've, I've been hearing such good things about your work for a long time, so glad to be with you. Okay. Wasn't ready for that. So <laughs> I really have waited too long because about eight years ago, I read your book, A New Kind of Christianity. Not to be confused with A New Kind of Christian, which was quite a popular book of yours at the time. And there are three things I want to pull out from that book that were helpful to me then that probably massively informed this podcast as well as mm. my previous theologically focused podcast, Reconstruct. The first image that you give in that book, it's very, very helpful. You contrast what is the classic understanding of the Christian redemption story, which is mm. influenced by Greek Platonic thought. And it's like a straight line. You can imagine it like the chasm in the four spiritual laws that separates <laughs> right. God and man. You're going along, you're in Eden, it's perfect. Boom, you go down, you have a fall. Now you're going along, but you're in a fallen state. So we have sort of a, a backwards square S. And then <laughs> you might get saved. Boop, back up to the top. Now you're up on top. So it's perfection, fall, 
re-perfection or restoration of that original perfection. And if you don't, it only gets worse. There's an arrow going <laughs> even further down to hell. I, am yeah. I explaining that? Anything <laughs> you'd a, add to that description no, of the no. image? Yeah, that's a, a really good verbal explanation. I call it the six-lined narrative because you have the first line of perfection in Eden. Fall is the vertical line going downward. Fallen world is a horizontal history that we're living in. And then some sort of some sort of redemption or salvation is a vertical line going back up. And then eternity after this life is the fifth line. And then that little trapdoor line going down to hell is the sixth line. Yeah. And you contrast this with a single line and it's just a ramp going up slowly over time. Now explain what you mean by the the single line ramp. Yeah, actually when in the book what I did is I I said imagine instead of a two-dimensional line, imagine a three-dimensional space and the space is opening up in in three mm. dimensions and the the that space is a space that is about creativity because Creation is the core part of this biblical story, and it's not over, it's ongoing. Creation is continually happening. And then another line is liberation, because one of the primary stories of the Hebrew Bible is that God liberates the slaves in Egypt. So the fact that certain people are oppressing and destroying and harming, we understand whatever God is, God is that liberating force. And then um, the third dimension is where relationships have been broken, relationships are being healed and restored. So that's restoration. So what I say then is, is we sort of imagine a story space instead of a storyline. I think that for whatever reason, what I took away from the book was, because I did, I, I pulled it back <laughs> out last night and I saw that three-dimensional mm -hmm. space thing. And I was like, oh, interesting. That didn't stick with me as much. Uh, that's, I don't yes. think that's your yeah, fault. Yeah, yeah. But I just had the sort of the 2D version, which is because there's a part where you kind of graph biblical stories and you sort of imagine. Yes, yes, yes. At the time, I would have probably called it progressive revelation. I would maybe think of it a little differently now. But the idea being that like, there is some additional complexity, beauty, revelation, uh, yes. understanding, integration yes. more and more over time. That might not, not every instant is better yeah, than yeah. the previous instant, but like if you plot it out on the whole. And I think my favorite thing about the difference between those two is how the ramp, whether in two or three dimensional space, yeah. aligns so much better with what we know about the physical universe yes. that God yes. has created. Yes. And if we try and put this perfection fall re-perfection, it's odd. It's like, okay, so what you're telling me is that 13 billion years in, <laughs> okay, on this planet, actually there was something that was perfect. Okay. Well, <laughs> why wasn't there more? Per okay. And then on this planet, oh, then that went to shit. <laughs> for a while. And then yeah. this guy had to die and rise again on that planet for those people to get back up. And it's like, okay, but what's going on in the other billions of galaxies? Yes. yes. You know? And so to have something that's like more like, Hey, we are becoming aware. We are being made aware. We are discovering. Maybe that's a co-process between us mm -hmm. and the creator. It just maps so much better onto that larger story. Yeah. And I found that so helpful. Well, I'm glad that was helpful. It's one of the other reasons that original story is so problematic. As you say, 
it doesn't fit with any science. It doesn't hit with uh, any deep history. The other thing, and really this was part of the germ, I think, that has been kind of a creative inspiration for me uh, for a big part of my life, is that that idea of perfection is so stagnant um, mm. because that old idea of perfection Nothing can change because if it could change, it could get better, which would mean it wasn't perfect before. So all right. changes for the worse. And that just feels absolutely boring. <laughs> yeah. uh, it also then means that every single thing we observe in the universe from swirling galaxies to subatomic particles is out of sync with the creator because the creator doesn't really like movement and change. The creator likes mm. things to be static. Yeah. Just to, to dip briefly into psychology, as that's my kind of favorite yeah. lens, I think you can fall into a trap on either side of that that mm. happens to correlate with people's personality types. Yes. You know, I'm sure you know this, conservatives, um, people who are naturally conservative, they are change resistant. Yes. Uh, and sometimes older people, uh, that's maybe more a matter of sort of their body slowly breaking mm. down. And naturally liberal people. Uh, progressive type personalities yes. are very open to change. I myself am extremely open to new experience. <laughs> I peg that one. Uh, and so one thing I worry is that Christians of certain unknown to themselves personality yes. types and then cultures of people with similar personality types who find each other and clump together are just kind of going to yell across. Yes, that chasm <laughs> separating yep. man and God from the four spiritual laws. They're going to yell across that at each other and go, God's open to new things. And the other people go, God got it right the first time. And they're just going <laughs> to miss each other. Like, how do we not just fall into the tribe that happens to correlate with our personality and then yep. project that onto God? Like, how can we get a bit of a better foothold than, than that? You're making me think of, uh, Jonathan uh, Haidt and the yeah. Moral Foundations Theorists and, yep. He's my guy. Uh, and, and George Lakoff and others who have talked about conservative and progressive brains. Years ago, somebody did research on guppies and found out that about 6% of guppies were the most easily frightened. So new stimulus, uh, a shadow comes over the pond where they're swimming and 6% are the first to flee. And then the majority leave, and then there's another 6% that are the last to flee. Yep. And what they found is the 6% that were the first to flee are predated less often. They, they are killed less often, but they also reproduce less often. <laughs> and the bold 6% are more <laughs> often killed, but more often reproduce. But you can sort of see that it would be evolutionarily advantageous to have in a species population to have some that are more risk averse and some that are more daring. So you can see there's a sort of survival benefit to this sort of thing. What you're telling me is that at Burning Man, there's a whole lot of sex going on and there's very little at a Trump rally. That's what I'm hearing <laughs> you say. Is well, that what we're supposed to take away? <laughs> I'm sort of, I want to make some comment about consensual sex, but that's another whole. Yeah, I'll well, just, well, sorry, I'll leave that to the side. Yeah. No, but your point is taken. It's it's cross species. We yeah. have like some of the little knobs that you can sort of imagine our personalities are tuned to from zero to 10. Some of the some of that is risk aversion. 
Yeah. And that's something that goes other species as well, not just humans. Some of it is stimulus seeking. Yes. And so new things stimulate our brain. They're novel. Right. Yes. And then, and that's like a knob you can, that people have a different level of. Yeah. And, and of course you're, uh, I think you're way ahead of me in psychology, but when you think about, you take that insight on a biological level and then you add a kind of psychological and cultural level. So here's where it would get complicated. Let's say you've got a Pentecostal family where hmm. the church is ye yelling and shouting and dancing and free singing in the spirit and yeah. all that sort of thing. And then they have a child and the child is an, is an introvert yeah. who never would fit into a Pentecostal church if they hadn't yeah. been born into it right. or, or the very, very opposite. So then you realize that it, let's say that we had in 2022, we had a sort out where all of the people with a conservative brain went into conservative politics right. and vice versa. They would have children and the children would inherit the group uh, identity that, that their parents introduced them to. And mm -hmm. it, it mixes things up pretty, pretty quick. But yeah. it really is interesting in religion, especially when you look over the last 500 years in the Christian faith when you think that about 500 years ago is the end of the medieval period, the beginning of modernity, the beginning of modern science, and suddenly you realize that in a period of rapid, rapid cultural intellectual change, to have a religion that is really set up and run by change-averse people is going to create an interesting set of challenges. So, so I agree with you. The dangers are there that everybody interprets the world by whatever comes most naturally to them. And we've got to be careful and we've got to have this sort of species level balance to be aware that there are times to be risk averse and conservative. And there are times to be daring and uh, experimental, um, all of that's there, but it, I think we're in a especially weird time in, in relation to religion. hundred percent. One brief note on the individual thing I'm noticing. And I think that this now makes sense to me that as I have become a father, there are some things that I am not stimulus seeking. I am like, <laughs> you, you have a brand new idea for a children's curriculum that you think will turn them into better people than previous children. Slow your fucking horses, man. Like my son is not your Guinea pig. You know, I, yeah. I notice like, Hey, okay. Like we could try yeah. changing 15% of this curriculum, yeah. but like some of this has worked pretty well. And I don't want, I'm not going to give my kid tabs of acid, to yeah. open up his mind, right? Like I'm not, you know, like I, I, I have something now precious that has yes. to be protected while also yes. teaching him and hoping that he can look to new possibilities that I haven't seen, but it's not carte blanche, right? It's like, exactly, exactly. and people yeah. do get more conservative in that small C sense, I think when they have children and now I'm thinking, well, that's, that must be why, because it yeah. gives you this precious, like pearl of great price and you don't want to screw it up. Yeah, it's kind of, if you think of it, it's the nesting instinct. That's why I think there. Are, you were mentioning that I think older people can be highly conservative. I actually think probably the most conservative time in a lot of people's lives is when they're raising young children yeah. until their children reach puberty. Because I think what happens, especially in settings like the one I grew up in, where we quoted Bible verses like train up a child in the way he should go. And when mm -hmm. he's old, it, we had these guarantees that if you just teach 
your kids the correct way, then everything will be fine. And then when people have teenagers, usually reality disabuses them right. <laughs> of that wishful thinking. But And it's sort of interesting that Focus on the Family and other groups like that that had a huge influence back in the 80s and 90s and so on, that in many ways created the political reality that we had now or contributed to it. Yeah. They were seizing upon something that I think had a certain kind of very understandable and maybe even biological dimension to it. Yeah, I think that they were basically uh, entrepreneurs of a particular antidote to a very rampant form of anxiety. That's my take on it. That's a good way to say that. And interestingly, you know, there's been like, I don't know how big of a deal this is now, how central of a message it is at Focus on the Family, but the writer D.L. Mayfield, who I'm sure you're familiar with, I'm sure you know her. I saw her post Someone, a friend of hers is on a focus on the family like email list and she posted a screenshot of this email to these older focus on the family folks. This one was aimed at like my parents' generation about how the children have gone astray and it's not their fault and, you know, they raised them right. So they must be under some other forces. I mean, it's like, okay, now I don't know how many people at focus on the family are doubling down on that, but I thought that was a really interesting, like that is kind of the next move you have to make. If you're going to stay consistent, if you're not going to question, raise them in the way they should go and that will solve things. Well, then it must be that you did it right. And something else happened. It can't yes. be that you did it wrong, right? Yes. We always want to sell people what they really want to hear at the end of the day. And this sort of resonates with me because I, I like a lot of people, I had a very strong spiritual experience in my teenage years, which actually got me reading the Bible. I grew up in a church where we had the Bible preached at us all the time, but I, I started reading the Bible on my own and I decided I should read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I just remember as a teenager thinking, this guy, Jesus, was really a hippie, you know, because that's yeah. when I grew up. But he, yep. he was progressive. He was, he was a risk taker. He was challenging the status quo. And I just remember when I read the Gospels on my own, and not just a verse here or there as often was preached, but really got this feel, I just thought, this guy is so different than what I would have guessed. And it was this feeling of, of surprise. It's, it is still a bit surprising that people would think that the character that they encounter in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would ha- be happy to preside over a very static universe with everybody in the bin of heaven where nothing ever changes because uh-huh. it's perfect or in the bin of hell where nothing ever changes because it's perfectly bad. Yeah. So... Maybe six or seven years ago, I was doing what a lot of my listeners have done or are doing now, listening to podcast interviews with people more on the progressive side of Christianity. Sometimes it's just an interview. Sometimes it's more of a debate. Like, I I know you've been on Unbelievable with Justin Brierley at least once Mm -hmm. that I listened to. And I started noticing something that you were doing and... Uh, This is before I had decided to study psychology, before I was still thinking of things primarily in terms of the text, the way we interpret the text. And I had a somewhat of a philosophy background, undergraduate background. So I had like a meta level of, all right, well, what are we thinking about the text? What's our hermeneutic? And what are we bringing to that? But I wasn't thinking psychologically. Mm -hmm. And this thing would happen. Somebody would ask a question 
about the text or a particular theological claim, and you and a couple other people did this too, would essentially answer with a psychological reply. Hmm. Something like, well, here's what I think is going on when people ask that question. Mm-hmm. And you're basically, the way I would say it is, you were not agreeing to the rules of the game for the yeah. initial question. And you were trying to sort of zoom out and capture what you thought was more salient. So my question to you first is, are you aware that you were doing that? Was that like a strategy? Did that just come naturally? Do you, I mean, am I getting at a thing yeah. that you recognize? Yeah. No, that you, you really are. For many years of my life, I understood here are the rules of the game. It's hermeneutics, it's, and so on. I wasn't even at the level of wanting to argue with the rules of the game. I just knew they were the rules of the game. So I would play by those rules. But then two things happened. First, I started realizing that the rules of the game themselves were problematic. And, and the way, the way that I stumbled into that realization was not so much philosophical as it was historical. I thought this, the rules of interpreting the Bible that I'm being asked to play by were the rules that justified slavery and were the rules that justified the elimination of the native peoples. And I do not hear these people like protecting their system from a repeat performance. They're using the same hermeneutic that was used to do unconscionable things in the past I don't want to even play by those rules anymore. So that was the the first part of it. The second part of it, though, the more I came to feel that this was a game that the that the people didn't even play fairly, I just didn't want to play that game anymore because it felt disingenuous. I was asked to speak at a big event at Wheaton College, which is a big deal in the evangelical world. People would know about <laughs> yeah. that. Oh, yeah. And, and a very significant evangelical figure was going to be there. I would, and when I arrived on the campus, I'm walking across the campus, all these people walk up to me and say, wow, we can't believe you showed up for this, man. They're really out to get you. And I said, what do you mean? Well, you know, there's a big debate between you and so-and-so tomorrow night. I had never been told I was coming oh to gosh. a debate. Oh so my gosh. It was a interesting experience. When it was over, a guy came up to me who is a professor and he said to me, the guy who debated me had called him a week before and said, Hey, I've got to debate this McLaren guy. What does postmodern mean? <laughs> and when I, when I realized the lack of intellectual integrity among these people, I just, it, yeah, that was the other thing that made me th- exactly the strategy that you saw. I, I just realized this is not a good faith game that's even going on by the people playing it. It's it's an exercise in confirmation bias. So, well, let me let me push back a l- gently on that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Y- the way that you framed it was the rules of the hermeneutical game yeah. of facing off a hermeneutic against another hermeneutic. That's what I understood. That's what I meant by the rules of the game. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we missed each other a little bit there. I would not think that the sort of history of interpretive lenses doing battle with each other is the thing responsible for perpetuating slavery or patriarchy. I would think some of the competing lenses which won out are the things responsible. But I think of people like there are people who play this game by its own rules. Pete Enns does it. Greg Boyd does it. Carolyn Custis James does it. 
Boyd and James being closer to sort of, yep. you know, having some sort of inerrancy that they will still believe in. Yep. And then, and, you know, folks like New Testament scholars like Matt Novenson, who was on or, or Dale Martin, right? If they had been on that unbelievable episode, they would have answered differently than you and they would have engaged with it. Now, whether or not their interlocutor was acting in good faith, they would still play that game. It, it doesn't seem to me like that's always a doomed process, no, 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 but no. depending on who you're talking to, it, it, it can be doomed. And, and so yes. that's going to a show trial debate that no one even told you about. Well, that would be a pretty good instance where the rules of the game are rigged, right? But yes. maybe not every episode of Unbelievable. And what I was referring to wasn't where people will say, here are my assumptions. Here's my, here's my hermeneutic. Here's the rules of the game I'm playing. Yeah. What are the rules of the game you're playing? It's where there's an assumption that if you believe the Bible, it means that what co- the Bible comes pre-equipped with these rules of the game. Right, and, right. And those rules of the game are sort of the given for even talking about the Bible. This idea of the rules of the game are themselves the problem is something that really resonates with me, especially in terms of like biblical inerrantists or fundamentalists and then new atheists on the other side. Like my my thing about those ongoing debates is that they essentially agree on the rules of yes, the game. Yes. Yes. That the Bible is either literally true word for word or it's all bullshit. And yes. then they take two opposing sides of that. And I'm yes. like, that's a really false dichotomy. <laughs> yes. uh, okay. When did you first begin to think I should address this question of should I stay Christian or not? That like when I found out that that's the name of the book you had written, mm. I was like, Oh, like Brian hopped on something like timely and quick and like, oh, that's an interesting, like, it seems to me like you reached a certain point where it's like, all right, we got to address this elephant in the room because people yeah. are just fleeing. So I'm curious what that process was. I had a Southern Baptist guy meet me at some event and say, could I take you out? I think it was for a beer. So it was at night in a private place <laughs> somewhere and, nobody else would find out right or if they did find out they wouldn't tell anybody <laughs> a mutual guilt exactly <laughs> and he said to me i want to tell you what's going to happen to you next from the southern baptist world because wow. i was just in a meeting where this was discussed they're going to say that you are the last stop to atheism and you can kind of see how people would set that up. Like anybody oh, who's yeah. reading McLaren, next thing they'll be an atheist. And and it, and I'm sure it wasn't just me, but it was other people who were doing similar kind of work. I remember saying, well, they'll have a lot more data to work with uh, as the years go by because I, I said they have no idea how many young Southern Baptists are in the process of becoming atheists because mm. I was having people come to me all the time who, and, and surprising numbers of clergy who would confide to me and say, you know, I've lost faith. I'm only going on with this because I got to get my kids through college. Uh, and so when I saw the number of clergy, not to mention laity, who the entire system was collapsing for them, including the, the very idea of the word God, I realized, yeah, th- th- big things are going on here. And I was sensitive to it because I had gone through those major kind of rethinkings myself. Right. And written books about it. <laughs> exactly. So 
for a very, very long time have been thinking that this was something that would need to be talked about. Frankly, when 2016 hit and when it was very, very apparent that conservative Protestants, evangelicals, charismatics, and surprisingly large numbers of mainline Protestants and conservative Catholics were both doubling down on the same political, theological, economic script, I just thought more people are going to have to leave because their conscience requires it. And in some ways, the new atheists are working on the idea that people are going to leave a religion because they don't believe it's factually accurate. <laughs> um, but that hasn't I, really happened. <laughs> but I think what's really, what, what ends up being far more significant is when people leave a religion because they think it's morally harmful. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some people who enter or leave religions like Christianity in a fairly intellectual way. Yeah. Those people often write books about it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just because they're sort of, you know, geared that way. Th that's definitely not the average um, person who enters or exits. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's more guttural. It's more about the group of people you're in. It's the people you look up to. How are they acting? Um, yeah. Where, where do your allegiances naturally fall based on your life experience? And, you know, as someone who grew up fundamentalist, I have a, a kind of a weird, I don't, I, this could be very idiosyncratic, but it's honest for me. Even though I was raised to take the Bible absolutely literally and to take the Bible super figuratively. Right. Um, right. And because my actual biblical training growing up told me that there was this figurative meaning dimension that was full of devotional depth and personal meaning. The irony was, I always felt I actually got from fundamentalism this idea that whether or not something is literal, literally true, there can be all kinds of literary meaning to it. And I think that's happening to a lot more people. That's cool. Yeah. I'm going to bring out a, just a couple sort of chapter titles and ideas from these three sections of the book leaving plenty more to be discovered by a future reader or listener. So there's why go, why stay, and then how to move forward. But the one about leaving, you've already kind of hinted at it. I wanted to draw a connection between a conversation I had, I don't know, maybe a year ago or something with, with Pete Wainer. Maybe it was two years ago. Former Republican strategist, one of these never Trump kind of DC guys and card-carrying evangelical Christian. I think he's probably dropped the label now, as almost everybody has. But in our conversation, he said the most, one of the most surprising and saddening things for him, having spent decades in American evangelicalism, is the lack of transformation of lives that he had seen, that he really had believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ having, you know, supernatural power or whatever you want to call it, having power would turn more people into more Christ-like people than he had turned out to find. Mm -hmm. And one of your why leave chapters mm -hmm. is because Christianity is a failed religion, lack of transformation. So I just wanted to kind of let you riff on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I have this memory of when I was a pastor, one of our lay leaders, you know, 
So this was somebody who was relatively new on the leadership team. And he said to me, you know, now that I'm involved in church leadership, he said, I'm starting to think that Christians are just as big jerks as anybody else. <laughs> and then he said, it's just that maybe would I would drive down the road and I would cuss out people who cut me off in traffic or who drive too slow in the left lane. He said, and, but in church, people get just as angry if they don't play the worship song that you like on Sunday morning <laughs> or if they you know, don't offer your favorite interpretation in a sermon. And I remember when he said that, I thought he's a little more honest than I am uh, about some things. But there, there is this sense that part of my religious upbringing was to say, we Christians are morally better. And, and then to say, and all, which implies all of those other people really aren't so great. And I think what happens to us is we see the falsity of one and then we see the falsity of the other. And that's not to say that the Christian faith does not bring out moral beauty and, and maturity and depth and development in, in some people. Um, it really, really, really does. But the fact is, Hinduism does that in some people, and Buddhism does that in some people. And I think part of what's happened over recent years because of this weird political, theological, and economic cocktail we have going on, and racial cocktail we have going on, is that people are realizing how many very, very pious Christians can suddenly almost like show their cards or show their true colors that were not what we thought. I wonder if there's a distinction too between like, oh, I thought that Jesus would be powerful, but Jesus is kind of anemic and just doesn't really get much done, which is a little bit more how I heard Pete talking about it versus what I think a lot of people have seen and expressed and experienced since 2016 and before that, which is... Oh, actually the name of Christ being an, and and not just the name, but like the whole language game of evangelical Christianity in Heather Griffin's words, the like 20 to 50 Bible facts accurately ordered so that I know that I'm good. Those things actually being weaponized on behalf of something that appears to us to be morally bad. I think there's a distinction between the two. It's like, oh, it doesn't do that much for people after all. Yes, and yes, like, yes, yes. Oh, are we the fucking bad guys? Like yeah. that's, I think the second, my sense is that the second is a lot more piercing that it, that sort of demands a reconsideration yes. in a way that, oh, we grew up going to Methodist church, but my parents were kind of just like everybody else in our neighborhood. That doesn't demand as much of a reconsideration. I think you're ab- absolutely right. And I think a couple things happen. One is more people get higher education and they have professors who are not beholden to hide certain and suppress certain information mm. and the internet. You put those two things together right. and people can start to find out about some of that history. I remember, I often think about what it must be like for a Jewish parent in 2022 or 2023 who has a child who turns six or seven or eight years old and for the first time hears the word Holocaust and what it must be like for a parent at whatever age is need appropriate who has to try to tell that story. But I also, I remember when I first heard the word, I was probably 11 or so years old and I remember after school asking my mother what that word meant. And it was easy for her to explain because the Nazis were atheists in her mind. Mm. 
Hmm. That's what she had been taught. Wow. And when I found out later that no, the Nazis were Lutheran and Catholic primarily. Oh my goodness. You know, I mean, Hitler was probably an atheist, right? But he couldn't have said that at the time, or he had some, he twisted it in whatever way he needed to twist it, but he was not, he was not a believer, (laughs) but he figured out how to get the church to be complicit and the church for the, for the most part was. Yeah. I think what we can see is figures like him arise periodically who have no shame, no conscience, and no integrity in how they will use religion. Right. And they find out how easy it is to manipulate religious people. And of course, we're seeing it in in many different settings at at this very moment. Yeah. Well, so then that begs the question, given your book. So if I leave Christianity, will I no longer be gullible and and easy to manipulate? Is that going to sort of protect me? in some sense, from being a pawn in someone's scheme? Will it not protect me or will it protect me at some cost? So I'll be protected from that, but I might miss out on something else. Like, how do you think about that? Yeah. So I, I wish it were that simple. And I think a lot of people do think it's that simple, but I don't think it is. And I think part of this is because of a whole wave of sociological research that was done after World War II saying, how could intelligent, civilized Germans do this? And then that research was replicated and expanded around the world. Um, Bob Altemeyer is one of the people who summarized that research super well in his research on what he calls the authoritarian personality. This is not to exonerate Christianity or any religion for its ability to serve as an authoritarian aggregator and an authoritarian tool or or set of weapons, but this seems to be a feature of human psychology. That's something like a third of us, a little bit like those guppies that I talked about, but a third of us, if we are put under sufficient stress, shame, fear, economic insecurity, uh, if we're put under sufficient stress, we will reach for an authoritarian leader to solve all our problems first. I wouldn't be surprised if Virtually 100% of us, if you keep upping the stress, wouldn't reach a point where we'd get there as well. Maybe 94%, those last 6% of guppies, will (laughs) stand up and and die in solidarity. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Just because they don't want anybody telling them what to do. Um, But at any rate, this seems to be a human problem. And I'm really fortunate. I actually mean this sincerely, although people think I'm being ironic. But, you know, because of my life in the religious world, I get to see the way, for example, Trump support is bolstered by a certain kind of religious personality. But I have many of my closest friends here where I live in Southwest Florida who are thoroughgoing atheists, some of them anti-religious, and mm-hmm. they have the same fervor for the former president. And so like I get this, I see it right in front of my face constantly that these relationships are complex, which is part of why I think psychology and social psychology could be indispensable lenses to look at these problems along with religion. Okay. Anything you want to point at from the why leave portion of the book before we move to the why stay portion? Maybe the only thing I'll say is I've had a couple of people say to me, why didn't you have a chapter specifically about doctrines 
that need to be challenged. And the, the only thing I'll say about that is, to me, it's never a surprise when a tradition or community that lasts for more than a generation has ideas that it's brought from the past that need to be rethought. So to me, the issue isn't that there are ideas that have been brought from the past that need to be rethought. The issue is, why can't we rethink them? Why is the Christian faith having so much trouble in rethinking them? And so that's what I tried to focus on in several of the chapters of that first part. Thank you. Uh, okay, so why stay? Why stay uh, in Christianity? I, I pulled a couple of these here. I pulled three of them. We can talk about whatever you want. But because leaving hurts allies and helps their opponents, you put that first, I think, on purpose. I think that's like a, hey, check this out. You might be doing more harm than you think. Mm-hmm. And I was a little surprised uh, to see that one in there. Tell us about that. You know, it's interesting. I haven't really asked myself why I put them in the order I put, but I wouldn't be surprised if I put that one first because it's one of the ones that has been most telling for me. Hmm. For me, the thought of leaving, leaving would have made my life easier on many, on many counts, but it, I would have felt this sense of moral abandonment of so many people who are doing good work. And there's a place in there where I, in that chapter where I mention that I have many friends who are not Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, uh, Jewish, whatever, who would really, who are really happy that I'm staying Christian hmm. because, because they, they feel we need people in that very powerful, very rich religion who are trying to minimize and reduce its harm and increase its benefits. So, and, and I feel that about my friends in other religious communities too. So I, I think sometimes it might be easier to understand by just imagining, yeah, people on the outside realizing we need people on the inside to do, to do, uh, to do the work that needs to be done. There's something embedded in there that I think we could skip over w- without realizing it, which is that you've gotten to a place where it is plausible for you to be happy that non-Christian religious people are in their non-Christian religions. But you didn't start there. No, I didn't. <laughs> That's not how there. you were raised. I wonder if if you hadn't gotten there, would this be a, a harder question? Would you not have that same resource of sort of commitment? I feel like I, I'm often trying to walk, not a tightrope, but a, a, a road where I could take a left detour or a right detour, and I can see problems on, on both sides. So on the one hand, I am not one who says all religions are basically the same. They're all saying the same thing. I actually think that the best analogy for me is that different religions are different research projects. They're, hmm. they're as different as physics and chemistry and biology and astronomy and ecology. They, they actually are looking at different problems. Their curiosity is taking them in different directions. They have different rules of the game. They have different ends. It's one of the reasons why almost everything I learned about other religions from within my evangelical Christian context was wrong, because my my 
evangelical Christian context worked on the assumption that every other religion was proposing a way to go to heaven and we had the only right way. Now I've come to believe that even the Christian religion is not primarily about how to go to heaven when you die, but that's right. another whole, whole story. Right. So I, I actually believe that each religion is a world of its own that makes contact with the other worlds, but has its own internal coherence and quest and, and problems and virtues and so on. But then the other path is to say, yes, but there's a hierarchy and mine just happens to be at the top. Part of what I want to say is, if I have had a life-changing encounter, I could call it an encounter with God, I could call it an encounter with meaning, whatever I want to call it, depending on my religious community. If I've had a, a bona fide benefit and blessing and joy and enrichment come in my community, then I ought to celebrate that. <laughs> and that, that doesn't mean my religion is worthless if other people happen to get benefit in their own community. A, a woman who really, I thought, expressed this so well, a, a Catholic educator named Catherine Moresca, she said that a religion is like a literacy. And and the more you understand your own religion and how it works is more like understanding your native tongue. Like when you learn about grammar and semiotics and all the rest about your own native language, if you ever decide to study another language, your better knowledge of your own language will better help you understand and learn. Literacy in right. your language helps you understand literacy. You learn to read poetry in English and lo and behold, it will help you engage with poetry in Sanskrit or right. whatever. And that to me is where the uniqueness of a religion doesn't have to be its barrier. It actually can become a bridge um, to, to other religions. So if they're different sort of fields like chemistry versus physics or whatever, are they asking different questions or are they, are they trying to understand the same thing in their own way. I want to try a quick metaphor out on you. So imagine it's like a very complicated patient at a hospital. And so they pull together a, a conference. You've got the, the cardiovascular surgeon, but you've also got the internist who's looking at the blood work. You've got the psychiatrist in there talking about what's been going on with the medication. You might have the personal therapist attesting to what's been going on in this guy's life. You know, you can imagine just these different, they're all working on understanding what's happening with yes. the same patient, but they are bringing their different lenses. And a, a real hack job here would be something like some of the Eastern religions are in the room like, hey, I know you guys are really into like perfection and, and maximalization, but we also, we have this question about balance, you know, or whatever. Uh, is that a useful way of thinking of it? Yeah. Does that line up with what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. And, and of course, uh, both of us are working with an analogy of, of scientific disciplines. Right. And it, a, another approach we could take entirely would be, but it would be getting at the same thing, would be to really focus on history. So when you think of the Buddha arising in India with a plethora of religious communities all coexisting in a pluralistic setting in, what is it, the fourth century BC. And he is faced with a set of problems that he's trying to solve. And, and he can only solve them 
with the tools that are available to him. Right. Uh, and, and his culture is creating the problems and providing a certain set of boundaries within which he can try to address those problems. And the same thing we could say about Moses or about Muhammad or about Jesus. And and not only about them, but also about Thomas Aquinas or uh, Augustine or St. Francis or Martin Luther. So in, in a sense, we just say, of course, each of these is arising in a different historical habitat, so to speak, in a certain moment when certain problems are pressing upon them. And one of the interesting questions for Christianity is, each of us inherit a version of Christianity according to our time and denomination and place in the world if, we're, if we identify as Christian. And what if the times are changing so rapidly that now there's a whole new set of problems and we look at our religion and think it really offers me nothing very helpful in solving these problems? I personally think that's part of what's going on mm. for the planet right now. I think young Muslims are growing up saying, Islam has all kinds of great treasures, but my gosh, is it going to help us deal with climate change and the power of fossil fuel elites and and the rise of autocracy and the growing gap between rich and poor? It, it, you know, it, right. people, are, people are saying the problems that pose a threat, thinking again of being a parent with young children, the, the problems that could screw up my children's lives, I'm not sure any of our religions are bringing great resources to the fore right now. And it, I feel like this is almost like an inflection point for us as a, as a planetary civilization, you know, with different religious traditions. Last week, a really great patron exclusive episode came out with Dr. Holly Oxhandler. We talked about spirituality among both clinicians and clients and a book of hers called The Soul of the Helper, where she is super research focused and really presents a kind of a path for engaging one's own spirituality such that it can make you open to the experience of others, whether or not their religion or spirituality lines up with yours. It was a really cool conversation, really wide ranging. I'm really intrigued by the book. So look up The Soul of the Helper if you're not a patron. Uh, and if you are a patron, I would really recommend listening to that conversation if you haven't yet. And of course, you can become a patron and hear it and all my previous patron exclusive episodes at patreon.com slash Dan Koch for five bucks a month. And of course, you can support the ongoing work of You Have Permission. Thanks for considering that. All right, back to my conversation with the one and only Brian McLaren. I want to skip around a little bit and follow that thread. So I read, you know, your book, New Kind of Christianity. I read Velvet Elvis, Rob Bell, you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago when it came out. I was kind of clued into the emerging church movement at that time of which you were a part. And now my good buddy, Tony Jones, was a part of it. And you guys liked to quote the Phyllis Tickle line that every 500 years, there's like this renewal movement, this turnover. I think it was understandable that at the time, maybe that's the emergent church. Maybe this is the next 500 year thing. It sure seems like that's what Rob thought. Uh, Tony has told me that's what he thought. 
Tony, if I'm wrong, correct me. What do you think about that? Do you think that she was right and you were 10 years early? Do you think that's to come? Is there any, you know, am I also, am I being unfair? You please tell me if so. So um, I don't think there's anything magic about the number 500. Yeah. Um, although even if it was accurate for the last couple thousand years, things are accelerating now. Totally. For example, she was trying to talk about Christian history in 500 year segments. If you go back to the early 20th century, Carl Jaspers, and then later a Catholic theologian, Ewart Cousins, picked up this idea of a first axial age and a second axial age. And so I think all of these different people have ways of noticing that there are certain sort of flows and paradigms and dynamics. If you make an analogy in psychology, you might say, you know, the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenic really helps explain what's going on in this person's life. Boy, it doesn't explain what's going on in this person's life. It looks like manic depressive disorder is really mm -hmm. much bigger thing. If you just think that there are certain sort of patterns that fit behavior, and I think those patterns change periodically. When people said the emerging church movement, I, said, I always said, I don't think there is a movement. I think there is a critical conversation going on and conversations mm -hmm. can lead to movements. But if there is a vital Christian movement seizing the moment and organizing and moving forward, I still don't think it has formed. I think the critical conversation is, is ongoing. And when I say that, I don't think it's formed. I don't think it's because anybody's done anything wrong. I think it's because we've been in a period of peeling the onion. And if any of us had come up with a solution with the number of layers of onion we had peeled five or 15 years ago, yeah. we would not have gotten as deep as we needed to. So, Yeah. We're zooming out a little bit, which is where I, I want to stay for most of the rest of our conversation. So keeping that kind of time frame, one of the reasons you list to stay is you say it would be a shame to leave a religion in its infancy. Brian, I hate to break it to you. Christianity is 2,000 years old, and Judaism at least 1,000 years or so, 700 minimum before that, uh, in a pretty organized form. How can you call that infancy? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, there are limitations with any, uh, any image uh, or simile or metaphor there, but the reason I wanted to use that metaphor is to say that a religion can change, a religion can mature. And Judaism is a fantastic example because I think Judaism in many ways shows itself in many sectors because there are so many different Judaisms, just right. as there are so many different Christianities. But in many sectors, Judaism shows itself to be far more mature than the Christian religion often shows itself simply because of its ability to tolerate dissent and its historical memory of having times and places where it was in power and times and places where it was on the verge of being annihilated. Far more and, often. <laughs> Far more and, often yeah, not in power than in power in their history. Ex yeah. Exactly right. And, and what seems to me to have retarded Christianity's maturity is that we have been in the position of power in many places for much of our history. And in a certain sense, when you're, the problem you're solving is how to rule over a civilization, how to be the religious glue that holds an expanding civilization together. That's one set of problems you can specialize in, but there are other sets of problems then that you'll have very little skill with. 
That one's so tough as I train to be a psychologist, because even as I intern and, and do some work with clients now, my job already is to basically work with an individual and, and have a vision for their life being a life of greater flourishing yeah. and, you know, overall less distress and, you know, that they can have like a meaningful yes. life. Yes. And if I were a politician or a general or whatever, and I were making decisions at the societal level, if yeah. you're doing your job well, you're looking at something similar, but in the aggregate, yes. um, you're going to have a less specificity of ideas per person, but you're trying to create structures that make people's lives like relatively comfortable. Yeah. And as those of us who have sort of left-leaning politics, when we are hoping for policies and whatever that bring up the, the life prospects of the poor and the marginalized, we are doing something similar. And on the other hand, there's the like the religious and spiritual genius that comes forth out of God through people or through co-creation in times of distress, sort of like how Brian Wilson, a tortured genius, creates really beautiful music. And like, yeah. I don't want people to have Brian Wilson's life. I don't want societies to get to where they need the yeah. major prophets. That yeah. is a bad sign. So I always find this, there's an inherent tension here. Like yeah. really what I'm actively working for on a day-to-day -day basis is I'm a fucking normie and I'm trying to get people to just have pretty good lives so they yeah. can see their kids grow up and whatever. And yet, the like deepest beauty and insight from my tradition and other traditions that I value comes when that's not happening. Yes. And it is like people being led to find new solutions. How do we value both of those? How do we yeah. hold both of those together? Well, first I, 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 th I think you articulated that really well. Keep them coming, man. I'll take, I'll take, uh, <sighs> you know, these uh, compliments from you all day long. <laughs> well, and I also am aware that projecting those individual dynamics onto groups is super fraught. Like when I yeah, said hard, right. Judaism is more mature. I mean, there's a thousand ways people could shoot that totally. to pieces. And there's maybe one way that it's that it's, that it's true. Has some value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I knew what you meant, though, like the, the you know, like Pete Enns and others who are steeped in Old Testament thought and therefore have had more interaction with like Jewish professors in their, yeah. in their scholarly life, you know, they bring forward these concepts, right. Of like wrestling with the text. Like that's something that they do much better than we do. Gener like if you, you can say at the scholarly university level, yeah. you take 10 Jewish biblical scholars and 10 Protestant biblical scholars <laughs> and yeah, they do a better job. Now that's limited to a particular setting in North America in the 21st yeah, century, yeah. but you know, there is, there's something real there. Yeah. But getting back to your question there, if I look at the way our best understanding, acknowledging all of its limitations about the way that our universe and solar system and planet have evolved, and especially if I take seriously the evolution of life, then part of what I have to conclude is that adaptability turns out to be this it's the magic. It's the, mm. it's the key because 
when you put a species in a long period of time, the environment in which it evolved is going to change and it's going to have to have adaptability. And I think this maybe is part of the challenge is that whenever we have an idea of a norm, that that norm only makes sense in a state relatively stable environment. And when we imagine that environments are constantly evolving, not just species, but environments are evolving, then the, in a certain sense, the only norm ends up being adaptability. I wouldn't even say the only norm, but one of the key norms becomes uh, adaptability if we're interested in, in survival. There might be some analogy in psychology where you think about this, that I imagine Donald Trump has figured out how to operate on the edge of or outside the law in today's economy with the help of a whole lot of good lawyers. Right. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure if you if if he were on a long drive and his car broke down in the middle of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, I don't think he would do too well from one day to the next. Nor would I, for that matter. <laughs> I always joke with my wife that I was born at the right time in history. I would have been totally <laughs> If I had to like, if I had to prove my value through my physical body or whatever, man, I would have, I wouldn't have done well in, in, uh, I don't know, 22,000 BC would have been a bad time for me to be born. Oh my goodness. I guess we all feel that way. All podcasters feel that way. And, and most authors. Yeah. I think so. That's right. Maybe not but, Joe Rogan. Okay. We'll give him a pass. He probably would be fine. Anyway. There you go. But all that's to say that I do think that that you're bringing up this problem of what a, what is a normal life and and the realization that stress and difficulty bring about many of uh, the conditions in which evolution can happen. So where I end up going with it is like I contrast Kierkegaard and Aristotle as like convenient shorthand. Okay, Kierkegaard purity of heart is to will one thing. It is, this is the ultimate sort of Western Christian landing spot in a way where it's like the night of faith just really basically doesn't sin in mm -hmm. fear and trembling. Like it's just, he's just woven into the fabric of God and we want to just maximize that. And Abraham goes to this place of absurdity in maximizing this commitment of faith. Whether or not that's Kierkegaard, the idea is like we're aiming for perfection, which is a maximal quantity of something good, holiness, yes. yeah. goodness, whatever. Yeah. Then Aristotle is about the golden mean. It's the middle point between two extremes on any given yeah. virtue. So you've got courage in the middle. You've got foolhardiness on one side. You're too quick to go into battle and you've got cowardice. You're too slow to go into battle. Courage is the in-between. And I find attention because the older I get, I'm just like, oh, I mean, Kierkegaard's been very important in my life and is one of the reasons that I am still a Christian. But I'm like, I got to pick, I got to take Aristotle, man. Like that just seems more like what a good life is. You got to find the moderation. I don't necessarily mean that in a political sense, but just like, yeah, like you're partying too much or you're not partying enough. Like what's in the middle? You want your kid to be able to like 
have extracurricular activities and be really engaging their mind as it's developing. But you don't want to you don't want to regiment every minute of their day, yes. nor do yes. you want to require nothing of them. Yes. You know, the the sort of like authoritative nurturing parenthood yes. is yes. in between permissiveness and authoritarianism on yes. either end. And so I'm just like I don't know how to think about this. I sometimes think of it as this is just the sort of Christianized Western ethos that maybe has capitalism even woven. I mean, I'm, I'm not, that's just not my world. I, not my area of scholarship, but I don't know. What do you think about that? And, and am I in fact a traitor to God <laughs> for uh, embracing the non-Christian, but maybe a kind of a theist Aristotle uh, and his thinking here. The thing that comes to my mind directly about that question is it's just why, isn't it great that we have a corpus of literature that includes Kierkegaard and Aristotle hmm. and that yeah. Kierkegaard has been super valuable for you in some ways and Aristotle is in others. And of course we see that same kind of diversity in the book, uh, in the Bible, because the book of Proverbs gives this sort of, maybe we might say a sort of golden mean kind of, uh, yeah, it does. Yeah. Practical wisdom. Uh, what Aristotle called phronesis. And, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes is like questioning all that. And the book of Job is almost yeah. mocking it. And yeah. uh, I, I think this is maybe part of the gift of a sacred text and a, a civilization's corpus of literature in that it keeps us on our toes to say, this can be super helpful, but don't forget about that, which is sort of a golden mean thing too, isn't it? Right. It is. Yeah. To even say we need all of these is to kind of give the game to Aristotle, I think, in, in that fictional matchup yeah. of mine that is semi-arbitrary. Yeah, but, but could I, here, here's, here's an interesting way I would think about that to go back to the idea that different religions are solving different problems mm -hmm. at any given moment, and especially at their founding. So what was the problem Kierkegaard was trying to solve? Well, he lives in a time of where Danish Christianity has come to mean about nothing. It's like Walker Percy said, uh, <laughs> if everybody's given one poker chip, it's the same as having none. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know what it could possibly look like, Brian, to be in a time where culturally accepted forms of Christianity are are religiously uh, bankrupt? What are you talking there about? There it is. So you can understand somebody <laughs> in that setting who's right. trying to say, put your whole heart into something yeah. and make this thing stand for something, you know? Mm -hmm. So thank God you have a Kierkegaard arise at that moment with that message. Yep. But then you can be super thankful for a guy like Aristotle, who is also looking at the big scheme of things and maybe looking at a larger historical framework. Uh, and, and so on. Well, and to take it to personal psychology, less to psychoanalyze Kierkegaard, but he, you know, he was a troubled dude yeah. and, and maybe was searching for something to kind of calm his natural anxieties and using his absolutely stunning intellect and, and abilities toward that end. And we all benefit from it. But thinking about myself, like this is a very, very basic thing, but I've, I've been learning a little bit about Taoism. I've read most of the Tao Te Ching and listened to a couple podcasts. And I just found that like, oh, there's something in the problem that Taoism is solving around balance. And, you know, the question, as I see it, is maybe like, 
how much and where to extend effort. That's one of the questions that Taoism is, is addressing. Yes. And in the last couple of years, it's become clear to me that I have a little bit of a Messiah complex where I had a, a fellow student in what was supposed to be a mock therapy session, but I decided to make it real uh, and sort of share with her what was going on. She's like, Dan, it sounds like you think it's your job to save Christianity. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like some part of me does think that. And how yeah. insane of a thing to think about myself, how how messianic and ego-driven and and of course absurd that 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 I could actually do that. And so finding that like, oh, this kind of more like what is the flow? Where is it? How can I cooperate with it without trying to dam the river up and wasting my life to do something I can't accomplish anything uh, anyway? Like for my personal personality, psychology, history, whatever, I'm finding that really helpful right now. Not yeah. to the exclusion of Jesus or anything, but yeah. just like, oh, that's it's answering a different question. Jesus was not answering the question of how much effort to put in and where. That's just not what he was. He was doing other stuff. Like that's not what he was working on. Yes. But Lao Tzu was kind of working on that question among other questions. I'm yeah. sure it's a rich tradition. I know very little about. And by the way, uh, one of the key elements of this moment is a, in a certain sense, every one of us, atheist, Christian, anybody who pays attention to science wakes up knowing that climate change presents this set of challenges where yeah. actually saving the world is no longer a theoretical question. And we wake up trying to figure out how do I live my life without blowing it up? The more I understand about the, the challenge and the, the threat that, that we face and simultaneously feeling how eminently solvable the challenge is, or at least meetable the challenge is, and how incredibly difficult the challenge is. The way I think about the climate change thing is values. Like, I think that the language of values in, in a lot of therapeutic modalities, like acceptance and commitment therapy, for instance, is helpful because, you know, if I try to say, well, well, I won't rest until climate change is solved. Okay, well, <laughs> not really in my control. Um, yes. But if I say my value is to live a life of reduced carbon footprint of, you know, fill it in however you want. Yeah. Uh, well, then you can do that and you can, you have purpose and meaning. You're making the planet better to the extent that you can make the planet better. My understanding is like voting is as important as sort of yeah. consuming ch consumption choices and stuff like that. So you can also do that. You can vote for candidates that, you know, whatever, but ultimately, you know, you don't choose your candidate options, you know, you only choose yeah. among them and yeah. other people and other momentums sort of provide yeah. you with those options, right? What do you think about that approach? I, I think that approach makes sense and doesn't change the fact that you wake up every day it, to be alive and reasonably well educated in today's world means we wake up with a set of existential threats at some part of our mind, the back of it or the front of yeah. it. The idea of, oh, I just want to live a nice, happy life really gets complicated by that reality. Yeah. And it makes me think for all of their craziness, these are times that could create some of those spiritual geniuses. Yes. And these are times that could bring out some more courage in, in a whole lot of us. And yeah. Yep. 
give us one thought of, of what you include in the book for how to implement a way forward if you want to keep some sort of affiliation with Christianity. One of the chapters is called Rewild, and uh, it, it's relevant because we've basically been doing it again and again in this conversation. Part of what I think our struggle is, those of us who have inherited traditional forms of Christianity, is that there are conceptual frameworks that are very, very powerful, and they're interwoven sets of definitions and and like that six line narrative we began with at the beginning that they frame there are a whole lot of framing that, that goes on and when the framing stops working it's it's psychologically super disorienting and it's depressing and it's scary and it's disruptive and and we've got to find some other way to try to orient our lives we have to find some other logic when the language framework that we've inherited isn't working so well for us. And in some ways, what I'm recommending in that chapter is that we try to return to the logic of creation, the eco logic of this world. And uh, I think I say it's somewhere that, you know, in a certain sense, salvation is biomimicry, learning to live in, in ways that the wisdom of creation itself instructs us. So, and and the need for immersive experiences that help us break out of just the language of the professional or religious communities or political communities that we live in. And and this is one of the things with social media. We are just sucked into the language constantly. And being able to find some touch points that aren't dependent on that language. That's a big deal. That's part of what I think why many of us are drawn to re deeper connection with the physical world, with our bodies, with the arts, yeah, with things like contemplation to, in a sense, try to have some part of us that gets liberated from the, the rabbit holes of words. It seems to me increasingly clear that we can't rewild ourselves with too strong of a connection to social media that that is at cross purposes. It's wiring us in a, a novel way based on algorithms that serve yeah. yes. the financial interests of a handful of yes, companies yes, yes. and their investors. And, and so, and it's also seems to be quite effective at doing that. Yes. And so I wonder if in, in rewilding, if, the kind of new social media, almost like <laughs> brain patch yes. that so many of us have, you know, I, I've, I've recently had a break from it and it's been really nice, but it calls to me still. And yeah, I don't know. Do you think of that as one of the big sort of roadblocks? I, I think that it is absolutely huge. I was just saying to somebody earlier today, it feels like that we're all in part of this huge psychological experiment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And oh my goodness, it's, it's, it's big. Yeah. Like I've been worried about COVID's effect on children. You know, my son, you know, being in COVID the first two years of his life, basically, obviously it's still going to some degree, but now he's able to like go to preschool daycare and, and, and stuff like that, which he wouldn't have been able to before. But I'm increasingly thinking that like, 
oh, the the COVID effect is going to be minuscule compared to the social media effect. Like that's the real big change and affects not just people with developing brains, although maybe it will affect them more. I guess we'll find out. Uh, But there's a lot of research coming out now. It's seeming, it's quite damning. Um, I've seen some recent kind of meta-analyses of of these various empirical studies and it's, it's rough. Social media usage is linked with like basically every single negative mental health outcome. And, and yeah. there's almost no linkages to positivity. You know, it's, yeah. it's rough. I also just saw some research about the effect of spending time in the forest. So yes. Uh, yeah. In fact, this to me is one of the interesting ways to think about what religion and podcasting and in some ways we're saying we have some degree of ability to choose the influences we, we want do, them yeah. to be on our brain. Yep. And the sense, let me take that seriously because an awful lot of my life will flow from what I let, what I let influence me. hundred percent. Well, Brian, we're out of time. Uh, I highly recommend people take a look at the book. Do I stay Christian by Brian D. McLaren? Anything else you want to point people to, we can put it in the show notes. Yeah. It, uh, my website's just my name.net, brianmcclaren.net. A pleasure to be with you. And I'm so grateful for all the good conversations you're hosting and, and the ways that you're inviting people into a space where conversation, thought, new possibilities emerge and permission is given. Ah, there's a, ah, there's a lot of us doing it, but it is my joy and pleasure to do it as well. Sorry for waiting so long to invite you on. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Look forward to staying in touch. 